In the Ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser. Welcome to another edition of In the Ring with Eusebius Makaiser, your response to my republishing of a really stunning interview I had done a couple of years ago now with Professor Musa Manzi, who is a geophysicist at Wits University, left me really, really, really chuffed that despite the horrible bad news cycle upon news cycle in South Africa, that there are stories that can inspire us. There is, of course, a danger with a single story, which we'll return to on another occasion, that exceptional stories do not mean that we shouldn't pay attention to structural injustices. People should not have to, against all odds, manage to realize their potential. There should be sufficient support for everyone to have a fair chance at being the best possible versions of themselves. Nevertheless, uh, hundreds of you have written beautiful responses to how you were moved by the story of Professor Musa Manzi. If you hadn't heard it, please make sure you find it on the podcast platform. And if you listen to it the first time I broadcast it on 702, then I think you will enjoy re-listening to it. It's like rereading a book. There are many more shades that you enjoy the second, the third, the fourth time round. I listened to it and um, I learned so much more and also found it inspirational as a listener, not having the burden this time round of being present as an interviewer. Why am I saying that? Because for the next couple of months, I want to intersperse our diagnostic conversations, our book interviews, our ethical debates with stories of South Africans and international stories as well that are interesting and just expand the category of audio journalism that you get from me and that we do biographical stuff and that we also check in with the lives of people that do amazing things in between being despondent about the state of the nation. And today, we're going to be doing exactly that. I am incredibly, incredibly excited to introduce you to Kushle Tsengwa, who, like me, is from the Eastern Cape. He has just, over the last three weeks or so, started a journey at Oxford University, arguably the best university in the world. I don't believe in these rankings, but for what they're worth, Um, There is agreement that Oxford is certainly the best, and if not the best, I don't think anyone would leave it out of the top five universities in the world. And he is just on an amazing trajectory, and another South African who has proverbially defied the odds. And I wanted you to get to know him, what he does, what he's passionate about, and as with Professor Musa Manzi, I think this is a story that will certainly spur you on to be the best possible you despite the structural injustices, which is not to say we must give up on the fight to eliminate structural obstacles. Kushle, thank you so much for being part of the conversation. You're on mute. Just make sure that you're on. Hi, Sibias. Yeah, I am aware. I'm unmuted now. Thank you for having me here. Excellent. And then just project for me. I want to get straight into your academic stuff. We'll come back to the personal um, stuff that will get me good listenership when we do some tear-inducing conversation. But I want to start with the nerdish stuff first. You are at Oxford because you are interested in robots. What are robots, by the way, if I can ask one of those 101 questions? And what exactly are you doing about and with robots? 
Hello again, ECBS um, and your listeners. Um, it's very difficult to define what a robot is. Um, if you attend one of these talks or seminars or these conferences, uh, even there, I'm sure the experts would di- um, disagree about what actually is a robot. Um, but but one of the definitions that does show up and which I like is just anything that um, has sensors to get information from the out, out, outside world and also has things that we call actuators, which means that it can get information in via the sensors and can with the actuators affect the world as well. And in inside then um, there's computation that happens. So basically that's the simplest definition of what a robot is. Uh, here at Oxford, I am currently enrolled in a DFIL, which is Oxford speak for PhD. Um, I am interested and I'll be working on local manipulation. So local manipulation is a combination of locomotion plus manipulation. So these are robots that have uh, that have legs, they can walk, but they also have manipulators, which are usually just robot hands on them so that they can do things in the real world. So walking is a, a pretty interesting problem in robotics, but it has been um, attacked a lot over the maybe past decade and there's a lot of success, but manipulation is now sort of like the frontier. It's very easy and we take it for granted how we can hold a mouse and we can right click and we can left click and we can hold a glass, you know, of whatever you like drinking and you can drink from it, but that's still very, very difficult for robots to achieve. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to ask you very silly questions, like a curious um, toddler, and does that mean what what you're trying to do? And is is there a global research program, in a sense, around the history of robotics in this regard, to try and get their movements to be a bit more fluent, to have the kind of dynamism that we have as human beings with our lips, and also to have the kind of sensory perception and awareness that we have? Is it an attempt to approximate our level of complexity? Definitely, definitely, Yes, there is that attempt. Um, you know, there is definitely that attempt, and it's 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 it it is coming from you know different avenues because even people working in computer sciences, uh, the the golden dream in computer sciences, right, is AGI, artificial general intelligence, which those people working there will be satisfied when um, the computer is as smart as, or smarter than the human being, a human being. That's that's what AGI really is. Even in the robotic side, um, there is that. Usually that's the metric. That's the metric people use to judge uh, success. So, for example, you know, if we think about deep learning and um, the fact that now with deep learning, you can classify images better than a human being can. You see even that language better than a human being can. So really, that is the metric that you know uh, people use um, now. I think even diagnoses in healthcare, um, there are machine learning algorithms that can diagnose maybe say an X from an X-ray better than a doctor can. You know, so and I think it is a reasonable metric, right, to compare to to to, to our abilities. But at the same time, it can also be sort of like Frankensteinian. Um, in the sense that you know we seem sometimes fixated in trying to 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 create a human being 
and depending on what you believe, you know, you may say we're playing God. And mm. you know, yeah, those are interesting philosophical questions. We'll we'll get to some of them. You entered a robotics competition. You've also worked with a motor company. One of the things that I've heard you talk about, and I I want you to explain this to my listeners, is firstly how interesting it is that the environment impacts the work that you guys do as robotics experts. A car made for South Africa is different to a car made for the UK. I didn't know that. So that's one question. And then a second question, um, starting out as a novice, you created a robot with some fairly simple for you, not for me, ways of putting together sort of lines that robots can see, as it were, and there are binary options. But you don't think that will be enough in relation to, if we take the car example, to have self-driving cars that can respond appropriately to to real-world scenarios. Just explain that to me in very simple layman's terms. How environment affects design? And secondly, why designs need to be so complex that future near future self-driving cars can be quite slick okay um the the first question is um very uh, you know it's very loaded um so yes it is true that uh, you know your design design of whatever engineering uh, engineering uh, a thing you are designing really is affected um, that design is affected by the environment because you know you you may think of the environment as part of the the the, the specifications really because if you're designing anything in engineering you have specifications to begin with so then uh, the environment shows up um, as a specification so yes that was interesting experience when working for that company that um, manufactured cars you know was also that's something that I learned as well. For example, the weather in the UK is different um, from the weather from from the weather in South Africa. So uh, something like a car, which is going to operate outside, uh, is going to be exposed, you know, to, to 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 different factors. So then, obviously, that um, that should your design should be aware of that. Another thing that I also noticed when I got here, the first day I landed in London actually I don't know if this it's an anecdote obviously but I'm not sure or maybe you know if can look at the statistics and then I'll see confirm this but it seems as though most cars here are dark like most cars are darker than the cars that I've seen in South Africa that's, that's something I know. Hmm. That's a lot of black cars a lot if not black then it's like sort of like navy or something hmm. and I just wonder maybe maybe is that because you know of these uh, you know uh, lighter colors tend to absorb light, uh, whereas uh, sorry, black tend to absorb, whereas um, lighter ones reflect. So because it's colder here, you want mm. to to have that paint That's a very also good point. Help, yeah. help you warm the car. So I was, but but yeah, that's the point. The point I'm making is really it's important. Uh, your 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 design is affected by the mm. environment. And then the second question was around the complexity of self-driving cars, because the problem statement is one that I can understand, even as a BA student, that environment has got so many data points that this machine needs to, if we ascribe agency to the machine, 
just in a manner of talking. The machine needs to take cognizance of an insane amount of data points environmentally. Mm-hmm. Is that a massive problem? It is a massive problem, UCBS, and it's impossible to answer that question, to go deep in that question without being philosophical. You have to start thinking about the philosophy, which is why um, I think some of the most successful um, researchers, say, for example, in artificial intelligence, are people who do think that the philosophy matters of, of, of this problem we're dealing with. Uh, so, for example, a simple thing that we do as human beings, which is the ability to perceive depth. This is something that's very, very interesting to me. Our ability to perceive depth, right? Like when I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the screen of my computer, I can tell that this computer is closer to me than the window that is behind the computer. And, you know, when you first think about that, you think that information is in the data, but it's not. That information is not just, you know, the, the, my eyes don't just pick that up and then there is the information. There's a computation that happens in my brain to figure that out, right? It's a, it's a problem that needs to be solved by the brain, you know? So now we're just talking about seeing here and seeing is part of the self-driving problem because uh, these, the, the car, if it's going to drive itself, it has to see. You know, the pedestrians, there's traffic lights, the other cars in the road. So I'm just talking about perception here, which is not the, the entire problem. But perception is a, is a really, really, really difficult problem. And if you do look at it mathematically, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not even a solvable problem. What I mean by that is you have to make assumptions. So your brain makes assumptions to figure out some of the things that it sees. It has to make assumptions. The information is not um, completely available in the data. It has to make assumptions, which is why sometimes we we we, we perceive there are optical illusions. That's why you can you can deceive a human being because the assumptions that the human makes are not correct in that situation. So it is a, a, a completely difficult problem trying to perceive. There are even questions about whether, for example, can this intelligence be achieved without a body that's that's an, an unknown problem i a lot of yeah i think you have done a brilliant job of articulating the challenge and while it is an engineering problem to attempt to solve it is a transdisciplinary issue because there's a sense in which the sum of the parts give you a greater human experience. And so replicating the individual constituent bits of a person doesn't mean that you will get a person. In philosophy, for example, there's a, you, you know this as someone who reads across subjects. The version in philosophy that's a simpler version of stating the same problem mm-hmm. is that you can build a machine that listens to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but the subjective experience of being moved by the symphony In the best case scenario, it's impossible to know what the success criteria are for knowing whether the machine is experiencing it. And the probable, our guess probabilistically, is that there is an irreducible aspect of the human enjoyment of that piece of music that setting up a parallel robotic auditory system uh, cannot Mm. achieve. Mm. 
I, I, I think, yes, that is, that is an, another thing that's very, very, very interesting. And yeah, it's, it is very interesting. You start to then, you know, um, talking with the people who are interested in consciousness now, because I think it is really interesting. It is really related to, to, to people. I've, I've listened to people who are, do consciousness research. Um, you know, I think it then becomes sort of like, you know, what is consciousness? Um, it is, you know, what it feels like, you know, to to smell choc- to smell coffee or to taste chocolate, or or the experience you get by listening to Beethoven, Beethoven, you know, that can replicate that 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 thing, what it feels like. But I want to bring it back to your research project. Are you, are you specifically interested in that level of research? I thought that what you wanted to do is just make the world functionally a better place, get cars that do better things than the current cars. To have drones that can help us do better with public health systems, delivering to areas like the ones where you come from in the Eastern Cape, and hopefully there's efficiency gains in doing that as well. Are you interested in that kind of application-focused research, you you yourself? I am interested in that application-focused research, which is why I decided to do engineering, you know. Um, But at the same time, you know, I can't, I can't stop myself from thinking about these other deeper implications of of, of things. You know, I, yeah. But I, I am an engineer. I am interested in 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 application of these technologies. But I'm also very interested, maybe equally interested in the other, you know, implications. Hmm. A last question around this um, before we we talk about other aspects of your life. Um, is engineering, as those of us who are liberal arts students sometimes think, extremely mechanical in its nature? I mean, you've once, quoting a sci-fi writer, characterized the most sophisticated solutions in science as even where we can make sense of them, from a point of view of a complete scientific account as nevertheless akin to magic, which is a really interesting, interesting way at the level of effect and description to, to, to reject what we typically do, which is to separate the magic of the arts from the boredom of maths and science. So when you think of engineering and you do your work and you go to the lab, Truly, um, for you, how do you how do you see that that endeavor? Is there an artistic, creative element to it? And what do you make of the way we typically shorthand speak in these silos? You know that magic and beauty is for us who write books and essays, yeah. and not for you in the lab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's something that's that's an interesting question. Um, I think you know that the, the the honest answer I'll give you is it can be both. Um, it, it, it usually just depends on the individual. You will find that that both types of engineers available. You you will find engineers who are just interested in you know getting the efficiency out of the machine, you know, and performance of the machine. There are engineers who are like that, you, you know, and they are good engineers. Um, and there are engineers like me who are 
also you know interested in in the magic of 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 building an engineering an engineering system and once you've built it spend time thinking about it and you know what it means um so they're they're both they're both kinds of engineers and they're all successful engineers but it, for me you know uh, having have started working recently and started doing research and meeting a lot of engineers uh, that's something i've discovered as well that okay some people are not as interested in these other things <laughs> as i am you know but they're still very good engineers so sure. it's been a learning yeah where did it all start because you are not supposed to have ended up with a Rhodes scholarship at Oxford University I'm not sure that you are who Cecil John Rhodes had in mind a poor black kid from the rural areas of South Africa uh I think I think I was obviously not as far as I as far as I think I can remember black poor people were not even allowed right into the scholarship when it started but where did it all start I've been thinking about that question. I've been, I've thought about it for a long time, actually. Um, and I don't think that there is one thing that we can say, okay, just because of this, you know, because, you know, I try to think about these different things that may be um, the answer to that question. But then, you know, I then say, but um, this was also, you know, a factor in this other person's life, you know, um, then so this thing can't be, you know, uh, sufficient to lead to my interest. Um, or I look at someone else and they didn't have that at all. So mm. this thing is not necessary. Mm. Um, but like there are a lot of things or influences in my own life that I can, you know, try to, to attribute to my journey so far. But I want to explore some of that, and I think you will trust me to share this with the public. One of your reflections about your starting point in life um, in Willow Vale in the Eastern Cape is that although there were difficult circumstances, and that's sadly, although profoundly important for you as an individual, not atypical in the Black South African life, but one you you very quickly move on from recognizing the downsides of living under conditions that are precarious, having a dad that's absent, and then you send to mom in a wonderful turn of phrase that an engineer is not supposed to be capable of writing, that you won the ovarian lottery. Explain to my listeners why you say that and, and tell us why your mom is so special in your intellectual curiosity that you then stayed with. Okay. Um, thank you for that question. I really love it. So, yes, uh, in my journey, um, as, as you know, you know, even though I've said that there isn't, you know, I, I, there are a lot of things and a lot of things that happened and, a lot of factors that have influenced my journey, but definitely my mom uh, has been very instrumental. My mom has been very, very instrumental in, in, in my, in my journey. After I got the scholarship, actually, I joked to her and I said, you know, I think the person actually deserves the scholarship is you, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I just projected you 
um, throughout. But yes, um, my, one thing that I just thought about this morning when I was thinking about this interview is, you know, something very, very small, but I think had a, a huge impact on me. And unfortunately, a lot of kids in my position didn't have, right? So like I remember when I was in high school, I someone who used to stress a lot before like exams, you know, and I'd worry, okay, am I going to do, I knew I was going to pass, but am I going to do as well as I want to, hmm. you know? And I remember this weekend before an exam, I just called my mom and I could talk to her about such things. I could talk to her and tell her I'm really, really stressed about this coming exam. I think I'm going to fail. You know, I, I don't, I don't, like I know a lot of, um, you know, kids in my position couldn't, they couldn't have that conversation with their, with their parents. Not, not because, because maybe their parents wouldn't understand you know, what this means for the child or, or you know, this is important to them. So, so my education, my mom took it very, very seriously um, because she saw that this was something that is very, very important to me. And, you know, another, another similar story when I was in grade six, I came back um, and I told her that I did very well, you know, I was first position in my class. And she said, I hope you continue that way. You know, so she was very, very there. You know, she she's a teacher, so she always speaks about this, um, this 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 philosophy that education is this three-legged thing: mm-hmm. teacher, student, parent. And she did play she did play the role of a parent throughout my education. I don't know if I'm taking too much time, but uh, on on Monday evening, mm-hmm. I just attended this lecture that was happening here at Oxford, and the the person who was delivering the lecture was a woman by the name of Catherine Catherine Bilbelsink. I'm probably mispronouncing the surname, but she's known as the the strictest head headmistress in the UK. She runs this school here in London and it's doing really really well. And it's not supposed to be doing this well because they don't select the kids based on ability, but her, her philosophy of how to train kids and how to teach them when she was speaking I just saw my mommy in her um that, that that's what I just I just just thought yeah that's absolutely beautiful that's really really beautiful how do you juxtapose that with memory of your dad you know there's we constantly in South Africa ordered black fathers and just thinking about it aloud for myself, I, I often flip between understanding the historical conditions that make for absentee, disappointing black fatherhood, like the migrant labor system, apartheid itself, that broke black men. And then if I'm in a less generous mood, I think about it from the child's perspective, that you are... Yeah entitled to love and nurturing. And, you know, then it becomes a question of soul for X because those two judgments are not strictly incompatible, but they do pull in different directions. Mm -hmm. 
um so how how do i hold i guess the question yeah i mean I, the way i frame the question now is in the abstract but it comes down to the concrete and the personal for you for me when we put it in the first person how do what do i think about my dad mhm um you know for me sometimes i do have uh more, most of the time i'll be honest most of the time i don't think i don't think about for example the absence of my father and you know the um, how that has affected me and my relationship with him most of the time uh that doesn't cross my mind you know uh, for for some reason i don't know why and i think that's healthier probably but when i do you know when i do think about it i don't come out with an answer you know i don't i don't come out you know with a solution to that problem you presented because that is the problem right um you know that's why you know a, a parent might be absent and may you know act in a certain way but you know you don't deserve that as a child actually sure. you know this person brought you into this world you know they should be protecting you and you know raising you i i don't have i don't i don't think my brain has been able to to come up with you know a, a good a good rationalization um to to that i just i just get puzzled about how this can be possible mm-hmm. puzzled and puzzled and then i move on yeah there are two or three last questions i want to ask you we started by speaking into the present your wonderful academic and intellectual curiosities as an oxford engineering doctoral student and then backtrack to your childhood but in between a hell of a lot has happened in broad strokes because we don't have time for too much minutia or maybe you can take one or two illustrative examples how did you approach for those who are listening or who have children or teenagers that they mentor that may benefit from this conversation how did you approach the problem of coming from an from poorly resourced areas in the country professor musa manzi's story for example moved thousands of people on radio and on the podcast because here's this guy who goes to a school doesn't even have a science lab ends up getting 100% for maths and 98 99% for for science you have similar ridiculous results for maths and and, and maths and science combined and you end up being one of those nerds that get to shake my angie's hands um what do you say because mentoring and teaching is already an important part of your sense of giving back um from a methods point of view while we wait for all schools to look the way they should look in terms of the norms and standards that this government does not comply with that it has agreed to is the definition of a school um how do you approach academic excellence and learning under suboptimal conditions yeah that's, that's a very interesting question and it's very very important and something i think about a, a lot um especially now that i am much grown now i wonder if i would have the opportunity to to make a difference in the south african education you know how how would i approach that um and i think you know we can have a podcast on that alone um but i do think um 
firstly, you know, um, before we even move to the pedagogy uh, of, of, of how to teach, it, it's important to have a, a philosophy around you as the student, uh, firstly, you know, you as a student, um, you know, these are words that people don't like these days, but like being disciplined uh, as a student. Uh, discipline, you, you know, these days sounds I know, authoritarian, but I still do think, you know, that's that's a very important thing if, if you are going to be a student. You're in high school, for example. There are a lot of influences, you know. Uh, there are a lot of influences. You're a young mind. So if if discipline is not one of the f- of the things, it's just not going to be able to focus on, on, on your studies. So there's a lot to be said about that, first of all. I, as I said, you know, my mom instilled that a lot um, in me growing up, but then I also moved to a boarding school. Um, Our boarding school is a strict boarding school. It's well known for for, for that. Uh, I stayed in boarding school, so I'd be able to go to town, for example, only on Fridays. Um, And I think that was helpful. I didn't need to go to town, you know, each and every day, (laughs) the week after school. And we had, you know, classes, obviously, eight to three, and I think four to five, we would have tutorials, you know. Uh, and again, you know, that seems like a lot of time being spent on studying because after that, nine to 11, nine to, sorry, seven to 9 p.m., we would have compulsory study again when I was in high school. So a lot of hours were, were being put into studying. So explain that, that to me practically, Kusle. So what did you get for maths and matric? I got 100% for both maths and physics. Okay, as one does. <laughs> <laughs> and for for maths, for example, on your point about discipline, how important was it to keep repeating, repeating, repeating problem-solving technique in order to master, for example, theorems? Yes. Good. Now that's the second part. You know, that's the second part. The first part really was it had nothing to do with, you know, exactly how you are studying. I think, you know, you can separate it into two like that. Uh, you know, the first one is just a commitment of doing this. And then the second part is how, the how part. And I think as well, that's that's something we can say a lot about the how part as well. So, for example, I, I'm like us famous amongst my friends, even when I was in university, I am someone who doesn't use past papers at all. Sometimes I would even go to an exam without looking at a single past paper. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, because I don't believe that is learning. You know, even doing, even mathematics, right? You know, people think about you doing mathematics as solving problems um, and looking at the answers at the back of a book. That is important in mathematics, but I don't think that it should be the main goal. The main goal should be understanding the theory. Um, you know, we have an equation f of x is equal to x squared. We have to think a bit about, about that parabolic equation. Okay, it's a parabola, and why? Okay, when we put in a 2, we get a 4. When we put in a minus 2, we also get a 4. Ponder a bit about what's, what's going on there. You know, instead of saying, okay, x squared is equal to 4, solve for x. You know, I, I, I believe a lot of time should be spent in learning and learning, and then only then. And I'm not saying doing past papers is bad, but only only after you have learned. Uh, I think of it as 
But implicit in what you are saying, which is why it is a separate podcast, but I think it's good that we have touched on it in this conversation about you, is that you do unfortunately need more than single-mindedness. You need an ecosystem that works, even if there are bare minimum requirements beyond fancy things like a well-resourced science lab. For example, it's extremely hard even for many talented maths kids to intuit what the point of certain questions are, what is the meaning of the theorem. And where I'm going with that is the importance of a good teacher. Yeah. Because you can be taught in a rote manner how to solve for X, or you can be taught to understand first principles. And that speaks to teaching. Yes, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Again, that's another very important thing. Uh, I discuss a lot with a friend of mine because we have these differences in thinking about these things because he then says to me, you know, the reason why um, sometimes he would struggle with the maths, um, uh, some abstract maths is because he doesn't see the point. What is the point of doing this? And a lot of people ask that question. They just don't see the point of, you know, understanding, you know, a right, line yeah. from the center yeah. to the circumference. Yes. You know, they, they don't see the point. And and I do and I do think that's an important thing, right, to to be talked about because <laughs> I do think one of the things that motivates people is meaning, right? Like feeling that what I'm doing is meaningful. When you feel like something you're doing is not meaningful, you're not motivated to do it. So yes, definitely a good teacher, if you can get one. Uh, I've had a lot of very good teachers. Um, yeah, and that's why I mentioned it to you. I mean, my school was well-resourced, but even though it was well-resourced, what I keep pointing out that every opportunity that I get to the point of embarrassing them was mm-hmm. the crucial difference that a particular good teacher makes in helping to exploit the capability of a curious student. And yeah. my own intuition is that that for me is key in addition to what you said earlier, referencing your mom, leadership, role modeling, discipline. But pedagogy is really important. Yes. And, and, you know, again, just just a bit on that, you know, even early on, even before I went to high school, I I went to a school in Idujwa. So I'm from the Willowvale, Gajan, but there's a town, maybe just about an hour away from that. So I, that's where I spent most of my, that's where I grew up basically from grade three to grade nine. Um, that was a really good school. In It wasn't resourced. Um, we didn't have a laboratory. We didn't do many science experiments. Um, the only science experiment I remember doing was we had put salt on water and we did something called electrolysis. So that was the best we, <laughs> we did. Uh, but the teachers were really good. The, the, the teaching, the teaching strategy is very, very important. I remember that's when I started, maybe it was in grade nine. That's when I started seeing, okay, I'll actually do physics because the, you know, the teacher was teaching us already about potential energy and kinetic energy and making demonstrations about how raising a chalk up and letting it fall down. And, you know, for me, you know, even there you could see there are no resources but you can demonstrate that with a piece of chalk. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm very imaginative, but to me, I could see the power of this thing that, okay, we can talk about this. 
energy and we start relating to velocity and we just need a chalk in a classroom. Kushla, there's so much more that we can speak about. Your commitment to using social media platforms like YouTube to disseminate information, to reduce the consequences of the digital divide, your commitment to mentoring, your transdisciplinary interests, not just being someone who's excellent at the sciences, but also you and I have already had some interesting debates on the side about um, metaphors and reading and its value and philosophical questions like consciousness, which you've interspersed in this conversation. You are truly inspirational and humble, and, and I really think you're doing amazing things. I want to ask you a last question that, that I've probably implied by giving you so much praise. How do you, and it's a, it, there's no linear answer, I get that, because I've, I've been through it myself and I go through it myself. How do you deal with pressure and maybe combined with pressure, how do you avoid the possibility of feeling like an imposter? I suspect you had your first encounter with that going from a village to UCT campus. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. I did have uh, imposter syndrome when I got to, to UCT. Just remember, especially in the first time when I was there. Um, and, you know, I mean, imposter syndrome, I don't think it's something that really goes away. Right? I had imposter syndrome when I started my master's in last year at UCT. Uh, you know, I'm sure imposter syndrome to my friend here at Oxford. Um, so, but the first question, how do you deal with the pressure? If, even that comes comes sort of like in episodes, the, the pressure, usually that comes when you are required to perform. Maybe there is a deadline, uh, there's a presentation. That's when, you know, the pressure becomes, as we say, real. Um, how do I deal with it? Uh, I don't know, right? And maybe um, I'm, I, I sort of ha- do have sometimes, you know, have sort of stoic, stoic philosophies you know well you know in england there's a phrase that the english use you're going to hear it a lot get on with it maybe you just mm-hmm. get on with it yes in the sense that in the sense that okay i know right by definition imposter syndrome is you think you know that you don't belong you are not enough you are not capable but by definition you know you are you usually are capable usually do belong there so I, I, I try I try to 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 remind myself of that. I, I That's a very good point, that, actually. You know, yeah. You can and, only you can only be a candidate to feel like a fraud if you deserve to be in that space. <laughs> yes, I yes. mean it doesn't help with the double consciousness, but but you're right. It's an interesting <laughs> way to try and deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another. Another one that I like, um, controversial person, but um, so there's there's a core discoverer of the structure of DNA called James Watson. Um, mm. uh, they discovered here in the UK actually. Uh, he says that you can only you can only do great things if you were unqualified to do them to begin with, sure. right? Like if if it was just expected that you would do something. Um, then you know it's not mm. really a great thing 
for you. So you must start out feelings being unqualified for it to be a great thing that you have done it. So then that allows you to use imposter syndrome to say, you know, I may slightly not be the person to do this, but, you know, I, I will do it and that will be great. Absolutely. And as you and I have discussed, which again, I suspect we're going to have in between your, your default journey, have three or four more of these conversations over the next year or so. Because I think it's important for young people who look up to you um, to understand that you, when you get those prizes at school and university at UCT, you've got so many awards. You don't just wake up being excellent. There's self-doubt along the way. There is two steps forward, one step back, and it's important to speak about that. And, of course, the other thing you and I have spoken about a lot and some of your other peers in your cohort currently is the importance of scaffolding each other and not having an atomistic existence because it's even harder to deal with self-doubt on your own. Um, and rather to scaffold each other um, to the extent that you can form community, which is really important. But thank you so much for all of this time. I am very chuffed that I managed to pin you down because I know that life is interesting and also busy at Oxford. Um, what is a typical day like at the moment, or you haven't got one yet? No, I have got one starting this week, actually. Um, I'm not sure if, if it's going to stay like this, but... Um, this this week it's been so I'm in a DFL, but I am attending auditing these classes um, that are in another program. So these are two hour lectures that I go to, um, ten usually ten to twelve, but sometimes they go over time to ten to half past twelve, and then I cycle from there to my college um, to have lunch. So I'm from from that lunch now. And then after that, I find a place to study. So the studying now is reading papers, trying to uh, uh, zone into what I'll actually be be, be be researching, read papers, watch some videos. Uh, sometimes there's a seminar, then I'll attend that seminar. And I don't understand 90% of what the people are saying in the seminar, but I still go. Um, <laughs> That's all too familiar. Oh, by the way, can I tell people the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you in Oxford so far? Or shall shall we leave it as a cliffhanger for the future? Let's leave it as a cliffhanger for the future. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that. Cheers, Kushle. Lovely seeing you. All the best. Thank you so much, Isibia. I really enjoyed this.